Here, for this is the word of the Lord. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. A question that has often come to our minds and it has often come up throughout, the, throughout church history is what does it mean to be a church? In the original language, the church is a gathering or an assembly. It is an assembly like we have here of those who have been called out of the world by Jesus Christ, by the power of his Holy Spirit. We have been set apart from the rest of the world for God. In considering this miraculous work, what is expected of the church in this age? There are many expectations that come from the world of the church. The world expects certain things of the church. Uh, We think of our day and age and all of the social chaos that is going on and the distress that this nation is facing. There are many who expect certain things of the church that really have nothing to do with the church. There are certain social movements, uh, social activism, community activism, that people call the church to be a part of when at root those movements are actually against Christianity. Uh, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had when you tell someone you're going into ministry, they automatically think of community activism or a political voice. And when I tell them that really the role of a minister is to Preach and pray. Often the response you get is, that's it? And I say, yeah, that's right. Uh, Pastors only work one, one day a week. But you see, these certain expectations that the world expects us to live up to, if we don't live up to it, the church is demonized as bigots. Because the world relies on certain things. The world relies on human force, human power, human success, human achievements. You see, their agenda is limited to this world. They think the problems of this world can be fixed by human effort, human ingenuity, 
They think the problems of this world can be fixed with human legislation. And to the world, the Christian way of life seems too simple, too arcane, too primitive, ancient, irrelevant, useless for their agendas. But the truth is, the church has the greatest privilege and we have the greatest access to power above all other powers. We have access to a power that is eternal, incomprehensible, unlimited. We have access to a power that can change the entire course of human history, starting with one person at a time. See, our access to power is not a materialistic power. It is one that surpasses our own imagination. And the means to access this power, the means that we use, are not the means that the world would find acceptable. These are spiritual means. They are means given to us by God, trusting in His faithfulness, not our own. Here, James speaks of two in this section, in this closing of this letter. And first, he addresses prayer, And then he addresses fellowship. We see this in the final instructions from James. And I broke it up into two weeks. Because this is probably the most practical portion of this entire letter. This week we see how we are called to pray. And he breaks it up addressing everyone at every level in the church. First, he begins with the individual Christian. How are we to pray as individual Christians? Then secondly, he addresses the leaders of the church. How are they to pray in the church? And then thirdly, as a church family, as a body, how are we to pray for one another? So first he begins with the individual Christian. And he says to pray through every circumstance. Uh, I've met uh, many Christians over the years. And each one of us carry different faulty tendencies. Some of us tend to pray only when times are tough. But when times are good, we forget God. We wake up without a thought of God and go to sleep without a thought of God. With passing thoughts of God in between. But then there are those who tend to pray only when times are good. And there is a zeal and a joy in prayer because all is well. All is well in the church and all is well in our own lives. Blessings abound and we are on a mountaintop experience of faith. But as soon as suffering comes, we try to fix the problems ourselves. Rather, than turning to the one who has all things under his control. And that is what these final instructions are all about. And although there is much instruction about what we are supposed to be doing, like praying, we cannot make it about ourselves. 
We cannot make it about our own efforts and our own prayers. It is really about directing our attention and prayers to God. For He is faithful, He is just, and He is for us. So we are to pray not only when times are good, but also when times are rough. He asks, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. We take it to God. Because He can be trusted. To either one, alleviate the suffering. Or two, to give us an answer to our suffering. Or thirdly, to give us the courage and the strength to suffer. He will sustain us through our suffering. Because when we pray during our suffering, we're not only to pray that He may take our suffering away, but also we pray that He may use the suffering in our lives to teach us, to transform us, to mature us through the suffering. But also, we are to turn to God not only in suffering, but in every circumstance. He asks, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Praise is is prayer turned into a song, much like the Psalms. Because we can forget God when all things are good and there's happiness in our lives. Our good gifts can become idols. And we forget who gave them to us in the first place. We can relax our fellowship with God when times are easy. We we can become complacent and lazy. And we can slowly drift away. We must understand this one thing, that Christians have the greatest privilege that no one else has. We can talk to God. We can talk to God. And He hears and accepts our prayers. That is the greatest privilege in the world. And in order to pray, we must understand this. And how this is tied to the good news of the gospel. When Jesus died on the cross, He tore the curtain that kept us out of the Holy of Holies, which is heaven. Meaning, our prayers would never reach God because of our sin. That's why they had to make sacrifices. But once Jesus died on the cross, that curtain was completely torn. And now, because of Jesus, through every circumstance, the good news for us is that God is always accessible through Jesus Christ. Because He has made a way through His death that we may not only be saved, We needed an atonement for our salvation. We also needed an atonement to pray and for God to hear us. And so that we can come to God directly in prayer. As our mediator, Jesus has cleansed us from sin. And now God hears our prayers in faith in Jesus Christ. 
Because we can't truly pray unless it is through Jesus Christ. He doesn't hear the prayers of those who reject Jesus Christ. When people say, well, I, I pray every day. But do you pray through Jesus Christ? Without Christ, God rejects prayer. He rejects the prayer of false idols. Because that's what it is. When people think they pray, and they just pray to a generic God without faith in Christ, they're praying to a false idol. They're praying to a God of their own imagination. So here Christians have the greatest privilege. And that is we have free access to the throne of grace. Through Jesus Christ as he told us. That whatever you ask the father in my name. He may give it to you. So ultimately what he is saying is. Given this privilege. Turn to the Lord. In good times and in bad times. All of life's experiences should be directed toward God. Because He remains the same God no matter what we are going through. He can be trusted. All of life should be directed heavenward. Because the will of God is good for our lives. Whatever it may be. Good or bad. In our own estimation. Whatever We have defined it to be. Now he doesn't say. Put on a smile whenever you receive. Bad news from the doctor's office. Or cheer up when you have lost loved ones. He is saying. In hard times. Pray. Not because the, the act of praying. Is going to help your psyche. Or your physical state. These days you hear a lot about. Uh, therapeutic prayer. Right? That, uh, all these uh, studies come out that say that prayer helps the body to heal and the, the actual act of praying does wonders to one's life. No, that's not the point of prayer. We pray first and foremost because of God. That's the only reason we need to pray. Because God first. Secondly, we pray because it is God that helps us in our time of need. And our Heavenly Father is always near and always with you through Christ. And if you are cheerful and happy in your circumstances, praise God. Praise God. Secondly, he asks the church, is anyone Among you sick. Let him call the elders of the church. And let them pray over him. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins. He will be forgiven. We have a few things going on here. First. It says a member of the church is sick. Now this is not spiritual sickness. As many have um, tried to teach. But here it is physical sickness. And the text implies that it is not just the sniffles or the common cold. 
It is someone who is bedridden. Someone who is on the brink of death. It is someone who is too weak to pray for himself. So the elders of the church are called to his bedside to pray over him as examples of faith. Secondly, what is going on here, the elders are told to do one of two things in response. Now, we don't want to approach this text in isolation from the rest of what is going on in the Bible and what we know from human experience. There has been much superstition that has grown out of this text. So we must ask ourselves, what does the rest of Scripture say when we read this text? The first thing the elders are called to do is to anoint the one who is sick with oil in the name of the Lord. In many cultures, oil is believed to have inherent healing properties in them. Specifically, you think of olive oil. If you add olive oil at room temperature to your food, it may be good for your health. But, over the centuries, in the church, oil became an important element for healing ministries to the point where oil itself became sacred. But that would be to ignore what is going on here and the entire rest of Scripture. When we look at the end of a passage like Exodus 28, when the priest is being consecrated, it is not the oil that is the focus of the consecration, but the person, the priest, who is being consecrated. Because when you think of it, you think of the disappointment it would be when you call the elders to the bedside of a sick man and they look to one another and ask, where's the oil? And no one seems to find the vial of oil. Oh no. Now we can't consecrate this person because we don't have the holy oil. That is not what is going on here. It is not the oil that is set apart for God. But it is the person who is sick that is set apart for God. We are anointing him in the name of the Lord, not the oil in the name of the Lord. And anointing the sick in the name of the Lord simply means that we are symbolically setting someone apart while considering God's will in the life of that person who is sick. And it's not the oil itself that has the power. Actually, the power lies somewhere else, and that is the next point. So thirdly, there is going on here, the power of the prayer of faith. It says, after the elders pray a prayer of faith, there is a promise attached to the prayer that is saving, raising, and forgiving the sick person. This sounds like the work of salvation, doesn't it? But here, he is speaking about salvation from physical sickness and restoring someone to earthly life. This text has been often been used for someone's last rites. But it is clear from the text that he is speaking about the physical salvation from death 
and raising someone out of bed, similar to when Jesus raised the paralytic and proclaimed that his sins are forgiven. What an uproar that caused among the religious elites. But he passed down the same ministry to the elders. But before we proceed and conclude certain wrong things about this text, we must remember and think of the ways that this text can be misused or misinterpreted. Not only has this text been used to develop certain superstition, but it also been used for bad preaching. So let us consider what this text is not saying first. And there's about four things here. First, it is not saying that we are to abandon medicine or treatments and the good things that God has provided us to use when we are sick. In fact, it is God that causes those medicines to work in our bodies and the way he built our bodies to receive them. And then think about how Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, he was a physician. And the time that Paul told Timothy to drink a little wine for his stomach problems. So it is not saying that. It is not saying we avoid medicine. Secondly, this text is not saying that the elders are responsible for performing miracle healings. Or most of us would not make the cut. And the sickbed is not a place to proclaim self-confident prayers like many of the faith healers we have today. This text is more about trusting God and His providential care, whatever that care may be. It is not saying that anytime we pray a prayer of faith, we will receive what we asked for. In this case, it could be healing. What happens when there is no healing? You think of when Paul prays to remove the thorn in his side and God chose not to. You think of when Jesus prayed to the Father to remove the cup of wrath from him and the Father didn't. Were they not praying a prayer of faith? So thirdly, it is not saying that we are only to pray when our faith is strong and certain. In fact, most of the time, we don't even know how to pray as we are. And how often have we doubted our own faith like the father of the boy who said, I believe, help my unbelief. That just shows us that our prayers ought to be prayers that rest upon the Lord and not the faith of the person praying. It is the object of the prayer of faith that is important. So the prayer of faith is to be God-directed. Just like the example of the oil, it is not the faith of the elder praying that is the overall importance here. But it is the prayer itself that comes from faith, even if it's small or weak faith, in the one true and living God. And who the elder is praying to and trusting in. We are not to trust in ourselves and in our own faith. And this leads to the next and final point here. Fourthly, God's response to our prayers is not based on the strength of our faith. Like when our faith is too weak, he gives half healing. And when it is strong, he gives full healing. No. 
This leads to us trying to muster up our own faith or pretend that we have strong faith when we don't. That is not how God works. And that is not what is meant by the prayer of faith. A prayer of faith can be simple. It can even seem weak to others. But what makes it a prayer of faith is that it is directed toward God. And trusting in His faithfulness, not our own. As we consider this, the elders are simply called to consecrate the sick for God so that He will be saved from death and raised from the sickbed. Why? What are elders called to do in the church? What are elders called to do for God's people? This is what this text is saying. We are called to direct your attention to God. That is the point here. It is to consecrate the sick and submit him to the will of God, trusting that he will heal or say, thy will be done. So the prayer of faith must be qualified here. So we must ask faith in who? It is about the object of the prayer, which is God. The prayer of faith is the conviction that it is the will of God to save the sick and raise him up. It is not an insistence on our own will to be done, but God's will to be done. Here in this text it is healing. Other times it might not be healing. But the point is that our attention is to be refocused. Because when we are sick, it may be a perfect opportunity for self-examination. To see where we are in our walk with the Lord. Not to be driven to despair, but to draw our attention to God and be reconciled to Him. And remember, salvation from death and being raised from our beds are both a foretaste of what is to come for every Christian who believes. We can be confident that in the end, He will ultimately heal us totally in the life to come. But that is not the concern here. It is about surrendering our wills to God's will. It is about drawing our attention to God ultimately through every circumstance. Because He has promised healing at some point or another. Notice also, He doesn't make assumptions about the cause of the sickness. Elders are not called to be medical professionals. And elders are not responsible to know all of everyone's private sins. Since the Reformation, we have been taught that private sins are to be confessed directly to God privately. And public sins confessed publicly. So the sickbed is not the place to make prophecies about healing or a diagnosis of why a person is sick like, you must have done something wrong. Believe it or not, I've heard this before. What did you do wrong? 
that got you in this situation. That is neither the time nor the place to ask such questions. Here, he doesn't assume that the person is sick because of sin. But he includes this just in case. Because it can be because of sin. We see throughout scripture people do get sick because of their own sin. But he doesn't assume. He says, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And these are sins that lead to sickness and death. We think of diseases that accompany a sexually immoral or uncontrolled lifestyle. But then think of this context and what Paul said when there were those in Corinth who were partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. He says, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. That just proves that there is much more going on in the Lord's Supper than just a memorial. And what were some of the problems in that church besides sexual sin? Well, division, partiality, infighting. These are the same problems that James was dealing with in his day. And this is where he goes next. This is the the backdrop of where he goes in this last point. Now he turns his attention to the church as a whole and addresses our relationship to one another. He says, therefore, in case there are any disputes or frictions in your relationships with one another, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. This confession and prayer for one another is speaking of mending broken relationships in the church. When we have wronged someone in in the church, we confess our sins to them directly and pray for one another instead of speaking ill of that other person. That is what we owe. That is our love debt to each other in the church. Now this is not speaking about confessing all of our sins to the other person. We wouldn't have enough time to do that. That would be impossible. Think of Martin Luther. When he used to confess his sins to the priest, he would spend about four hours confessing all of his sins and all of his sinful thoughts that he had throughout the day. And then he would confess the sins that he had to confess while he was there confessing his sins. Here he is speaking about those serious sins, specifically those that we commit against each other. We ought to consider not only if we have wronged someone else, but also whether there is bitterness or hatred towards someone in the fellowship. Just like when Jesus spoke about anger and its destructive results when bringing a gift to the altar. And he says, there you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And there is another promise attached. And it says that you may be healed. In case there is a sin that is causing you to be sick. As I mentioned When we ask ourselves, as we often do, where are we in our walk with the Lord? You know, we we hear a lot of people ask, 
that question. Where are you in your walk with the Lord? Well, we should also ask ourselves, where are we in our walk with one another in the church? Are we in good standings with each other? Are we in the right with each other? We ought to consider these things, especially before we approach the Lord's Supper on any given Sunday. And again, as a church, confess our sins and together bring our attention to God in prayer. And we conclude here with an example of one who relied on and trusted God. That was Elijah. And from Elijah we learn that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. He was a man of prayer and a righteous person. He he wasn't a perfect person. But he was made right with God by God. And notice what the focus is here. It is the prayer that has great power. Not the righteous person. Because he goes goes on to say, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah was weak, he was fallen, he was sinful, he was a dependent creature like ourselves, and yet he fervently prayed that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Ironically, if you go back to the Old Testament and read First uh, Kings 17 to 18, you read of this great faith. And then when you get to 19, you see his frailty as he runs from Jezebel. He runs for his life, scared out of his wits. This is why he said he was a man of like nature, like us. He was a man just like us. Yet, his ultimate reliance was upon God. Through prayer. He wasn't a magician waving a wand, making things happen. He consulted with God first. It was God who called him in the first place. If you read again, uh, 1 Kings 18, it says, The word of the Lord came to him and told him what to do. The word of the Lord came to him and told him to pray. He went to the throne of the Almighty who can do all things through prayer. He depended on God and His will to be done. He depended on His promises because God is the one who can do all things, not the guy praying. And through our prayers, He can do all things because we are His children through Jesus Christ our Lord. He won't turn away our prayers. For the sake of Christ, He can't turn away our prayers. It is against His nature to break His covenant promises with His people. Because when we pray in Christ, at the same time, Christ intercedes for us. So the Father will not reject our prayers. So if God is all-powerful and has all things under His control, then why do we pray? People often ask this. Why do we pray? If God has all things under control and it is all for our good, why do we pray? 
Well, we pray not only because He calls us to pray, and the fact that prayer glorifies Him, and that prayer is a way of communing with God in our fellowship with Him, in a loving fellowship with Him. But we pray because we are needy, we are dependent creatures. We depend upon Him for everything, for our very life, for our next breath. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We can apply that to prayer. Apart from Him, we can do absolutely nothing. So we are going before the one who can do something in a situation where we have no answers to. We are going before an all-powerful God who can ultimately change things. Whether or not He chooses to answer at the moment we want Him to. In this situation of Elijah, prayer has the power and effectiveness to... Well, not in Elijah in this text. It has the effectiveness to... Heal sickness and torn relationships. So ultimately it is for our good. We either need to pray for forgiveness for our own sins. Or for God to grant us the faith to forgive others. Then here in Elijah you have a man who is bowing down with his head between his knees. Telling Ahab to go look for the rain eight times before anything happened. And if nothing happened, what do you think he would have done? He would have prayed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And notice he doesn't give a time frame. He doesn't give a time frame of when it would work. It could be a 24-hour period. Or it could be decades before we receive an answer to our prayer. Because that's not up to us. We are just called to pray. And He will answer. We can trust God that He will answer our prayer in His time. So we ought to have what is called patient prayers. Waiting for the fruit. Think of the patience that Israel had to have after 400 years of slavery before God answered their prayers. Generations passed and died before it happened. But it says that God saw their affliction and heard their cries and sent Moses. Then ultimately, he sent Jesus Christ to answer our prayers for a new exodus for God's people out of slavery to sin. And think of our own lives for the things that we pray for. And how long we've been waiting for an answer. But God is faithful. Our faith is not what is ultimate importance. The ultimate importance is the faithfulness of our God. And if you are not a Christian, what is the means that God has provided for you to become a Christian? What is a vehicle? Prayer. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. 
After you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, how do you come to him? First, by prayer in Jesus' name. Because whatever you ask in his name, this he will do. And this is what glorifies God, including your salvation. And this is what it means that prayer is a means of salvation. So let us pray.